The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines this morning. Big focus on China today as uh, the all-important numbers roll through from the mainland market. The Chinese economy tipping into deflation for the first time in over two years, with consumer prices falling by 0.3%, keeping further pressure on Beijing to step up the stimulus. Banks laid Wall Street into the red after Moody's cut the credit rating of 10 regional lenders, but the ratings agency insists the sector is still strong despite the headwinds. It means government partially backtracks on its planned windfall attacks and banks announcing the levy will be capped at 0.1% of risk-rated assets after lenders see heavy losses in Tuesday's session. And Disney's ESPN partners with Penn Entertainment to launch its first sports betting book with CEO Bob Iger looking to rejuvenate the House of Mouse ahead of key earnings later today. And Nova Nordisk shares rocket to a fresh record high, jumping 17% after unveiling positive results from its weight loss treatment, Wegovi, cementing the Danish heavyweight as Europe's second largest by market cap. China's economy has tipped into deflation for the first time in more than two years on an annual basis. The July Consumer Price Index fell by 0.3% year-on-year. That was slightly better than forecast, but still marks the first decline since February 2021. CPI was, however, up on a monthly basis, rising by 0.2% compared to June. China's consumer price index has been on a steady decline since the turn of the year with its post-lockdown recovery failing to take off. Deflationary pressures will likely add to calls for further government stimulus. Now, policymakers have already rolled out a series of measures aimed at propping up small businesses and a troubled property sector. Meanwhile, annual producer prices sank for a tenth straight month, falling by 4.4%. Let's get out to Sam for more analysis. Sam, we've had a string of negative data with import-export prices yesterday. And now, as we look at the numbers today, it is around deflation, CPI, PPI, that the market is watching very closely. Just spell it out for us. What can authorities do to turn this around, given it seems to be a complex mix of problems from domestic demand fading to the international forces also coming to bear? Very good morning to you, Karen. Well, we've been putting that to a number of guests this morning as we got these numbers. Of course, the market was expecting to see deflation, and that is what we got, although not as bad as first anticipated. But uh, certainly this is building the case now for more stimulus. What can they do? Well, people that we've spoken to, uh, analysts over at the Milken Institute uh, and also uh, JP Morgan this morning, have suggested this is really a consumer precautionary savings issue that, of course, uh, many Chinese people 
are keeping their money in the bank, of course, the equivalent of basically keeping it under the mattress, or saving it for when things uh, improve. And uh, JP Morgan was suggesting that uh, the way that they need to approach this is focusing more on boosting long-term income expectations because if you have a job and you're confident about that job and your income, you're more inclined to spend your money. The other problem, of course, that is facing the Chinese economy right now and these households and their savings uh, is that youth unemployment, of course, is a, a record high. So when you have children in your household that don't have a job, of course, that is going to say uh, put, force you to put more money uh, into the bank, of course. So uh, this is a situation which uh, many have suggested is going to be a very difficult task to, to get out of for the Chinese government, particularly at a time when we know that domestically local government debt is rising. That is a big concern now for the Communist Party. And the other thing that we've been uh, talking about, of course, just this week is that Mother Nature has been wreaking havoc, of course, on China's economy as well. We're looking at uh, a loss of about $5.8 billion in the month of July alone from these heat waves and, of course, these typhoons, which have been uh, affecting agricultural land, etc., and also uh, housing in terms of these rescue efforts. So no doubt that that is an unexpected drag on the economy, which is already uh, really struggling with the downturn that we've seen in the property market. Of course, we know that this is a sector where a lot of money is tied up. And this is, a, of course, a sector that is very much struggling uh, at this stage. So it really is um, a lot of uh, problems facing the economy right now and the Chinese government as to how they're going to be able to stimulate growth moving forward. And I think what the deflation tells us today and what the uh, import number told us yesterday was it's not just an external problem. It is very much an internal problem. And that perhaps uh, threatens to challenge or at least undermine the government's plan to rely on domestic demand and the Chinese consumer to mitigate some of that soft overseas demand. That is very much the problem moving forward, ladies. Oh, absolutely, Sam. Good to see you from afar. I just want to get in uh, your quick sense because obviously, uh, aside of the data drop, which has been uh, disappointing, and yeah, you know, still not talking about the dreaded deflation word in China yet, uh, we're also looking at uh, the long-awaited uh, executive order from the Biden administration to expand the scope and scale of uh, the export ban of uh, sensitive tech to China. And what are you hearing on that front? Well, it's nice to see you, Tanvi, and we very much miss you here in Singapore, but I hope you're enjoying it over there in London. This was something that has been talked about, of course, for a number of months now. We know that this, of course, has been imminent, and there has been some suggestions now that this could be coming as early as today. Some reports are suggesting we were expecting this uh, off the back of some media reports in recent days that this could be coming this week. Um, in terms of how China feels about all of this, of course, uh, they do believe that the U.S. is using national security as an excuse and that they are weaponizing the whole idea of trade and technology. The fear and the expectation now is that China would retaliate uh, against a move like this. Not exactly clear how, but of course we have seen the moves on Micron and so there have been some warnings that US companies should certainly prepare for this. If you read some of the commentary in the Chinese state media, there does seem to be a feeling that, of course, uh, this could uh, perhaps 
perhaps uh, pose a bit of a challenge to Biden's re-election campaign and that this could create a lot of uncertainty for U.S. companies losing out on a market like China. Um, but of course, this was something that was brought up during Yellen's visit to Beijing. We've got to remember she assured them that it would be limited in scope. It would be transparent um, and targeted, uh, wondering whether that did reassure uh, the Chinese officials. What's interesting is whether this threatens to derail the re-engagement we've seen now between the US and China. We've got to remember that we're now seeing reports that Gina Raimondo, the Commerce Secretary, may be the next cab off the rank in terms of US officials heading over to China, and she has been very much at the forefront of some of this pressure we've seen, certainly on the technology space. So this will no doubt be, if she goes there, a very critical trip for her. But as you suggested, Tani, of course, this is to close what the US believes is a loophole. We've already seen the export controls, but this is to fill the gap in terms of that money, that US capital and those expertise heading to China. Back to you guys. Gosh, Sam, you put me in a spot uh, by revealing my nickname right here to the team in London. Now I'm going to be in a difficult situation, but I'll see you soon. See you soon and we'll talk about China, get up to speed on what's happening in the region uh, in just a few days. Uh, thanks very much for that, Sam. I just want to quickly recap uh, the US market action uh, overnight. And we saw a down day for the major indices. Uh, Dow Jones down about uh, four tenths of a percent. This was uh, the fourth negative session in five uh, for the main index there. The S&P 500 down uh, for a fifth session in a row out of six. And that was the case with the NASDAQ as well. Uh, it must be said that Goldman Sachs was a major drag on the Dow Jones with Microsoft being a key component dragging the indices as the S&P 500 as well as the NASDAQ. I do want to touch upon the main story, the epicenter of all the nervousness and tension in the U.S. markets overnight. Regional banks uh, saw uh, it pretty much on the chin on the back of the major downgrade that came in from uh, Moody's uh, talking about how their financial health did not look okay. Even though they said that the balance sheet situation was not dire, you saw a major, major sell-off for some of the regional banks uh, as uh, Moody's did. The credit rating agency did put some of the larger banks uh, on their review list. Uh, this was uh, the net impact on the ETFs, uh, which saw the biggest fall since early May. Uh, for the regional banks. Uh, so that's something to be mindful of. Uh, what was the net effect on U.S. big banks? Let's bring that up. Uh, yes, some of the big ones were under pressure, but not a whole lot. You have to remember that uh, back uh, about a month ago, uh, you had some of the big banks in the U.S. like Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo actually clear the Fed's uh, annual stress test results with flying colors. In fact, the Fed said that the largest 23 U.S. banks would lose about $540 billion in a hypothetical doomsday economic scenario, but still have sufficient capital to absorb losses. But I think the spillover effect from what happened uh, in yesterday's session among the regional banks and the downgrade coming in from Moody's uh, just led to a sentimental downtick and correction in these stocks which have had a great run on the back of net interest margins expanding and of course uh, the tightening of rates that we've seen over the course of the last two years. Treasuries, let's mark that for our viewers because uh, that's getting reflected in how uh, treasury, play, treasury market played up as well uh, stateside. You had the 10-year note going at 4%, the two-year note going at 4.74%. We pushed, uh, we pretty much puts the spread at about 73, 74 basis points. Again, the curve continues to steepen and that's a key talking point in the U.S. markets. I do want to wrap things up uh, as far as the U.S. market action is concerned uh, with a quick read of uh, the market volatility index, the CBOE VIX, which went down a little bit after that 17 reading yesterday uh, to hover around 16, at the handle of 16, but not too much to take away in terms of volatility intraday from the markets there, Karen. The ratings agency is certainly in control of the narrative lately as we had 
the Fitch downgrade of the U.S. credit rating, and now Moody's around those U.S. regional banks. So some havoc coming from the ratings agencies. Let's get to David Newhouser, CIO at Livermore Partners. David, welcome back to the show. Great to have you on board today. The market at this stage seems to have had a bit of a wobble looking at the, the news flow from the ratings agencies, the reinforcement of that news that China is still a weak link for markets, and then, of course, still a, a lot of monetary policy that investors are debating. How are you viewing the market at this point? Yeah, thank you for having me, Karen. I mean, at, the, at this point in time, it looks like the markets have peaked uh, as you ended July here, and you've seen the, the reinflated trade uh, mainly in the indexes, as long as with technology. And a lot of that, of course, is off the back of the, the AI boom, of course, that started uh, earlier this spring. I think at this point in time, you're starting to see more uh, realization that the global economy is starting to weaken. Uh, you're starting to see China enter a deflationary environment. And then at the same time, uh, you're seeing stubborn core inflation out of the U.S., uh, along with earnings growth that is is slowing uh, in, a, in a meaningful way at this point in time. So it begs the question of where we are uh, in the cycle. And it looks like we've seen uh, sort of a snapback to where the sell-off was last year to a really strong rally this year. But as we enter into the summer months of August, it looks like we peaked and we might start to see a slow grind uh, lower. So, David, if you look at these markets, the Dow at 4% off uh, its record high. We've got the S&P 500 also about 6% off its record high. And the Nasdaq, after those strong gains, 14% off its record high. Do you just cut and run when it comes to the equity markets and hide out somewhere else? Uh, what's the strategy? So I think it's a very unique situation because, as you've seen, a lot of people have been calling for recession for some time, uh, myself included. Uh, and, and we have yet to, to see that. So I think you're starting to see some rumblings of that from a global economy standpoint with the with the China news out and the data here recently in the last few days. Um, I think coupled with that, you've seen slower uh, U.S. Uh, economic data as well that shows that, again, the economy is slowing, credit is tightening, but at the same time, the consumer consistently is spending. So it really is a bifurcated uh, type of economy and market. Uh, it's very difficult then to invest. Uh, so earlier in this year, you know, Livermore, as we started the year, we were focused mainly on energy, uh, commodities, and as well as the luxury sectors. Uh, out of those sectors, of course, luxury has done the best uh, with the likes of you know, Ferrari and uh, Louis Vuitton as the high-end consumer con continues to uh, you know, move forward with the pace of growth and, and acquisition of consumer goods. Um, I think on the commodity side, you've seen pressure uh, mainly through some oversupply with, again, weakening China demand uh, globally. Uh, but again, there's been tightness with OPEC cutting back, and I think you've seen prices snap back uh, meaningfully regarding the energy sector. So we still like that area for growth going forward. David, good morning. Can we hear? How do you look at the whole consumer space, uh, given uh, the pressures on CPI and PPI that we're seeing uh, in the U.S., and especially uh, all that talk about how China, sooner rather than later, because of uh, producer prices cooling in the region, could export deflation? So some of those effects would be felt in the Western world. Yeah, I think that's true. I think you're going to see uh, some of that as well, especially over the next 
six to, to 12 months. So a lot of this talk, talk about whether we're in a soft landing or hard landing or how that sets up the global economy. You know, I still think, uh, you know, if you look out even over a period of like said the next six to 12 months, to me, the base case still is a stagflationary uh, environment. And more than likely, at some point in time, you're going to see uh, the path towards a hard landing in the global economy. Uh, that's something that's very hard to determine at this point in time based on the data. Um, but I think you're seeing some true signs that, you know, as you go forward and you see higher cost of capital, as you're seeing, you know, less loan growth going forward and a consumer that is starting to become very stretched as inflation is, you know, embedded into the system, you know, it's just going to make for a tough road ahead. So in the investment environment, I do think sort of the cut and run strategy makes a lot of sense today. But again, if you look in between the lines, there's still some really good value with companies trading at, you know, three, four times cash flow. A lot of it's in the energy sector with strong returns on capital. So there are areas you can still invest in today. You just have to be very patient capital. Yeah, interesting. Uh, David, we touched upon banks. I, I just want to go a bit deeper on that sector. You know, there was expectation about how down the road uh, there would be skeletons tumbling out of the closet in terms of uh, NPLs, not performing loans. And the risk of defaults rising. There was talk about problems in the CRE market. You pointed out consumer debt, uh, consumer debt rather being an area of concern. Uh, when will all of, that, all of that show up? Because thus far, the story has been one of promise for the banks on the back of expanding NIMS as well as net interest income. Yeah, so that, that's very interesting. I think everyone, you know, if, if you step back, you know, you like you said, you see the CRE uh, sector and you look at the non-performing loans. I mean, everything is ticking up. So it's like a, it's almost like a slow-moving uh, car wreck where you know everyone sees the data, sees the impact of what the fundamentals look like. Right? You look at the commercial uh, market as well for real estate. I mean, it just doesn't look good at all, right? And yet you haven't seen you know any huge uh, downticks in a lot of areas. You know, we've seen, of course, some banks go under, of course, in the spring, but it didn't have a cascade effect uh, as well. But a lot of that has to do with the Fed and pouring liquidity into the system. And of course, I think that also led that along with the AI boom uh, led to sort of the risk on uh, movement that we've seen here in the first uh, seven months of the year. So I think as you go forward, the question is, you know, when does the rubber hit the road? And, and when would you see a material uh, downdraft in earnings and the market itself, and especially as it relates to the banks, uh, which are sort of the lifeblood of, of the market itself and the economy? So I think it's a matter of time. It's not sort of an if, it's a when, um, but it's very hard to determine that when. when. David, when the rubber hits the road, let me just pick up on that because we've spoken about Tesla in the past. 2022 was the year to be shorting the stock, but 2023 looks like a completely different ball game. We've got 130% gain on the stock so far year to date. It has rallied with other momentum names like Meta, for instance. So it is a widowmaker's trade as such so far this year if you short the stock. What do you think happens from here on some of these big momentum names like Tesla and Meta? You know, I think you're going to see some pullback, uh, which you've started to see. I mean, Tesla's stock is up off almost 20% off its high. But again, it's had a really volatile movement since the start, of, since the end of last year. So it was at a 
at a low point, at least technically speaking. Uh, fundamentally, things weren't looking very good, though, at, this, at the, that time of the year to start the year. But again, with momentum coming back and the liquidity coming back in the market, the stock exploded. So I think it caught a lot of shorts off guard. Uh, and then, of course, the AI boom uh, caught Tesla as well, which saw the stock rally up to almost back to $300 a share, almost you know over $800 billion market cap. I think today the fundamentals still, to me, are a deteriorating uh, business that's seeing increased competition globally. Um, yet, you know, Tesla's the leader today. So I, I personally think the stock has a lot of downside from here. It's just a matter of time um, when some of the actual fundamentals catch up uh, to the technicals. And then we see uh, a down move in the equity. David, great to catch up with you. Thank you so much for the time again today. David Newhouse with us, the CIO at Livermore Partners. Karen, let's talk about the important data that we're all watching out for stateside. Core U.S. inflation is expected to rise by 0.2% in July, the smallest back-to-back uh, -back gain in two and a half years. On an annual basis, the headline print is forecast to show CPI rising by 3.3%, an acceleration from June. Still ahead on the program, how much magic is left in the kingdom? The House of Mouse is on uh, the radar today as it reports third quarter results. But will Bob Iger's turnaround plan pay off? Fasten of an order shares surge, coming within striking distance of taking the crown from LVMH as Europe's largest company by market cap. We'll take a look at the buzz around the company's promising new weight loss drug. And earnings season rolls on with Novozymes reporting second quarter results. We'll be hearing from the CEO of the Danish biotech company, Esther Bajet, that is coming up at 8.10 CEO. CT. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. ESPN has inked a $2 billion deal with casino owner Penn Entertainment to launch ESPN Bet, a branded sports book. Uh, the deal includes $1.5 billion in cash over 10 years and will see Penn rebrand its sports book service and relaunch it as ESPN Bet across the 16 legalized betting states where it has licenses. Karen. Meanwhile, Disney will report third quarter results after the bell today with analysts expecting the House of Mouse to see a near 5% rise in quarterly revenue. Investors will also be looking out for subscriber numbers in Disney's streaming business, which are expected to fall by around 3 million from the previous quarter. And box office performance and linear television disruptions are also expected to weigh on the streaming giant's earnings. Arabile has been taking a look at the numbers ahead of the release. Arabile, it feels as though Bob Iger has managed to plug a gap with the strategy around ESPN, but still it has issues around content spending costs. 
that is certainly the next one that he kind of has to deal with. You're quite right that ESPN bet is one that he has said needs to actually be looked at quite significantly. So ESPN bet comes on uh, the market then. Bob Chappek, the former CEO, had actually spoken about trying to get a little bit further into the wagering world. So they did a whole lot of that. And that's what this deal is actually about. It's said to bring in a lot more. Plus, it does mean that ESPN gets to uh, bring in a little bit more money, meaning that Disney overall won't necessarily have to keep funding it as much as they have of late. They've had to bring in a little bit more funds because they're going to try and fund a new acquisition in part of their strategy. So, yes, big concerns, one against streaming and TV concerns then. One, streaming. Disney Plus is unfortunately not turning a profit as yet. So the question mark is about when that begins to happen. 2024 is slated to be that time to, to effectively do so. But the hopes is that despite all of that, they're then going to have to cut off a few of their, uh, na uh, their TV networks in order to make up for all those losses. At the same time, still in the streaming space, Disney is looking to acquire that 33% stake in Hulu that is currently owned by Comcast. Right? They put a flaw on that deal back in 2019 of no, on, on no less than 27.5 billion US dollars. So those streaming concerns are certainly at play here and they're gonna have to make a move on that. Bob Iger is expected to perhaps give out a little bit more detail when it comes to that front. Box office performance as well. The Indiana Jones movie didn't perform as well as they would have liked, so not gaining the kind of funds uh, into this. The question mark is also around whether there's any spark left and creativity in their movie performances at this point. So Disney Plus not necessarily doing well, but Hulu is also expected to help in some ways because that is their adult uh, focused sort of streaming service that they've pointed towards as being helpful, perhaps in their box office performances, plus creativity on that, on that front. Cost-cutting impact? Well, that just means then they're going to have to cut off a lot of their TV networks. Bob, Chepec, uh, Bob Iger rather, himself had spoken about this, saying that they're going to have to be expansive. In fact, this is exactly what he had to say in a recent CNBC interview. The transformative work, of course, is, is making sure that our, course, our cost structure uh, reflects the, the economic realities of the business, and that includes disruption. Transformative work is dealing with businesses that are no-growth businesses and what to do about them, and particularly the linear business, which we are expansive in our thinking about, and we're going to look expansively about opportunities there because clearly it's a business that is going to continue to struggle. Well, they're going through a whole host of changes, and this kind of tells you that in this time of a turnaround policy, this is unfortunately how bad things have become. Uh, Bob Iger may have only left for 11 months, but he came back to a whole host of issues uh, for the company, which is down 50% then on a two-year basis. There's also worries around India because they lost the rights there to actually broadcast the Indian Premier League on their streaming services, even though they've held broadcasting rights. So a whole host of issues still at play for Bob Iger, as well as Disney. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.